1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone and I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia, where I'm a senior lecturer in history at Macquarie University. And I'm here today, actually, I'm so excited uh, today because I've been looking forward to talking uh, to this author for a long time. I'm, I'm here today with uh, Lindsay Sarah Krasnov. Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnov is a historian specializing in global sport. Communication and Diplomacy, she's the director of France and Us, which is a fantastic resource for people who want to look it up, and she lectures on sports diplomacy at New York University's Tisch Institute of Global Sports, she's also the author of The Making of Les Bleus, which which if you haven't read it, you should also read, that's The Making of Le Bleus, Sport in France, 1958 to 2010, and she's written on Global Sport for CNN International, The Washington Post, and The New Yorker. But we're here today to talk about uh, Lindsay's newest book, Basketball Empire, France and the Making of a Global NBA and WNBA, out from Bloomsbury in 2023. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I've been so excited uh, to talk to you about this for about a year now. So <laughs> I'm really glad that we're finally getting, getting to speak.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this as well.
1: So Lindsay, I, I'd like to start off by asking you the same question I ask everybody else, which is just uh, simply, how did you develop this project? Where did it come from?
0: It's a great story, the origin story um, uh, of Basketball Empire. When I was researching and writing The Making of Les Bleus, while the primary focus was on football, soccer, I did a little sidebar on basketball. And at that time when I was researching, it was still in the early aughts. Um, and while, while it was clear that there was something going on in terms of French into the NBA, there wasn't the same sort of kind of results or you know recent history to, to back it up at that time. But I found myself becoming more and more interested in it, as well as the fact that for the, the making of Les Bleus, some of the um, archival materials um, that I pulled on from the late 1970s and early 1980s about the kind of the sports study sections that were uh, being instituted in the French school system. I found that there was more documentation on the basketball side than the football soccer side. So that I you know, kind of, I knew I wanted to do something with that but it wasn't until 2013 when I was still working for the US Department of State as a historian um, but working very closely with colleagues at the U.S. Embassy in France on a joint World War I centennial project, that the the kind of the seeds of basketball were further implanted in the World War One work. Part of my um, part of the research question was what did U.S. diplomats in France do during the first years of the war when war broke out in 1914 as a neutral nation? Even though we know that they had fought, whatever they were doing had fostered very very close ties with their French counterparts, um, and kind of helped to set up a, a, a new type of uh, rapport uh, between uh, French and American diplomats, and part of what I was charged with doing was also trying to diversify the voices um, of who we were examining. You know, at the time, the U.S. Uh, uh, foreign Service didn't exist in its current status. You know, the the ambassadors and the diplomatic corps were appointed. Uh, they were usually from the country's elites, um, even more so than perhaps now. Um, and it was all white gentlemen, um, by and large. Same with the consular service. Well, although um, as part of this uh, project, I found that that was not always the case. And so I was on the hunt for as diverse an understanding of who was doing what on behalf of the US government in France uh, during the first years of World War One, And I had come upon two two or three examples of how sports was a connective tissue in kind of an early iteration of what today we would call sports diplomacy, but at the time, you know, it was never really kind of fused officially as such. Sports diplomacy, uh, you know, our common definition being when the acts of the diplomatic world, communication, representation, and negotiation intersect through the sporting realm. Um, whether it be through an officially credentialed government diplomat or representative of state, and that includes um, uh, elite athletes uh, performing or competing on behalf of the nation at uh, major international competitions, or informal or non-official sports diplomacy undertaken by everyday citizens. And while this latter is you know, far more diffuse and robust today in the 21st century, There were not that many of examples of it in the early 20th century, yet I found that there is example of the U.S. Consul in Saint-Étienne, France, William H. Hunt, who was stationed there for about 20 years. He was one of the very few African-Americans in the U.S. Consular Service at the time posted overseas, and he was posted to France. And he used sports, particularly rugby, to assimilate into his local consular district. Um, he rapidly became the president of the local rugby club in Saint Etienne. Uh, the it was the uh, the that club still exists today as Case uh, Rugby uh, in Saint Etienne, the professional team there. Um, but William Hunt was its longtime president, um, and he kind of used sport unofficially to foster relations with local French people and to push his case. When the war broke out in 1914, yes, he was technically a neutral. Nation, um, you know, uh, representative. Yet he worked diligently on behalf of his um, consular, um, you know, citizens, uh, particularly those tied to his rugby club, to try to find out where their loved ones were. Were they interned in prisoner of war camps? Were they missing or killed in action? Um, and perhaps was not exactly a hundred percent walking that neutral line, which is a fine line. Um, and it won a significant gratitude from the Saint-Étienne community to the point where after the war, he remained for you know, up until 1927 when he was reassigned to Guadeloupe, um, he remained a pillar of the society there, um, despite the difference in his background, skin tone, and so forth. So that was one of the early examples of a kind of sports diplomacy that fostered closer relations and better understandings of French and American citizens at the time. The other was found in French ambassador to the United States, J.J. Jusserand, who himself was a writer and a a bit of a historian recognized by the American Historical Association in the 1920s for some of his work. But um, Jusserand was stationed um, as the ambassador in the United States from 1903 through 1924. So again, for an equally long time. And the fascinating thing about um, him is that he used sport to forge better relations with American citizens, particularly with then U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. Juusuran was often tasked with going on walks with uh, Roosevelt through Rock Creek Park and um, recruited to play tennis as part of the famed tennis cabinet. Um, uh, some of Roosevelt's closest advisors and executive secretaries um, to you know very informally. Uh, you know, think through some of the issues of the day. Um, And it is, we found that because of these close relationships that Jusserand was able to forge through tennis, through walking or other sports, um, that when war broke out in 1914, he was able to petition fairly successfully for assistance and aid. On behalf of France. So these are kind of like the, the founding the founding stories that then while I was there in 2013 researching these very stories and had found the early the early um, you know uh, pathways for them, I was also watching Les bleus, les Bleus of basketball win the European basketball uh, tournament, Eurobasket for the first time ever. And I had already understood a little bit of French basketball history that there was a very long and proud tradition. And that from the immediate post-World War II period, so like 1947 through 1959, uh, the national teams, both the men's and the women's national teams had a kind of a first golden age where they did pretty well in international competition. Um, They won medals at European tournaments. Uh, The men's team won silver at the 1948 London Olympics. The women's national team won bronze at the first ever FIBA Women's World Cup in 1953. But then that kind of was, um, that, that progress was uh, nullified by the sports crisis um, that uh, began, well, was illuminated by the poor showing at the Rome 1960 Olympics. And kind of, um, you know, as the making of Le Bleu gets into prodded France to, to put sport as part of the everyday part of its uh, citizen project. And so, you know, I found myself watching that 2013 Eurobasket winning team and A, being over the moon happy for them, uh, knowing all the, the setbacks and the challenges that they overcame, uh, but also looking at the individuals who made up that team, more than half at that point had U.S. experience in the NBA, whether they were currently active NBA players or had played a few seasons and were back in Europe or elsewhere. And I found myself thinking to what extent did their U.S. experience and their NBA experience play into how they were able to level up their team game and win it all on the European continental level, Um, knowing that the NBA is recognized as the elite basketball championship in the world, Euroleague, you know, very close second, but uh, the NBA is still seen today by most um, as kind of that, that, premiere the best of the best, um, but also knowing for myself through study abroad as a student, through work experiences and you know, research as a as a historian, that the experience of being abroad also helps you in a variety of other ways, maybe not just developing your professional skills, whether it is your professional skills as a historian or as a basketball player, but also your, your own personal development and how you um, kind of a better know and understand yourself and then how you're able to bring that to your other endeavors. And so I found myself thinking, is there something in those players overseas experience, the U.S. experience that helps to explain why you know France has started to again win at um, titles or very close um, to titles, you know, um, silver medals, bronze medals in international competition, and why at that point by twenty thirteen there was a clear, um, a clear demonstrated history of a continual pipeline of French players into the NBA. The first ones hit in nineteen ninety seven, as well as in the WNBA, but by twenty thirteen it was clear that it was not a fluke that some NBA draft classes would bring in you know, four players, some would bring in just one, but it was consistent over time. And so that's kind of the very long uh, origin story for a Basketball Empire.
1: No, but I think um, one of the things that I was getting out of your response is, and when I read the book, you you set a very hard task for yourself in some ways, like because you actually needed to, you're integrating a range of different subfields transnational history, <laughs> diplomatic history, sports history, and weaving those together. But also, I mean, even in your response here, you're kind of talking France and the U.S., but when you use this term basketball empire, and I would ask you here in a sec what what you meant by empire, you don't just weave together France and the United States, but you also have the, you know, French Antilles and Africa. And so I, I wondered... Um, You've talked a little bit about your why you why you wanted to do this diplomatic history, but I wondered um, a bit if you could explain to us why you called the book "Basketball Empire." And probably people who do French sports history are already twigging a little bit to some of the <laughs> reasons, but uh, maybe you can tell us uh, what 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 led you to this uh, great title and what you meant by empire. Whose empire is it? Is it France's? Is, is it the United States? Is it the NBA's? <laughs> uh, whose empire? <laughs>
0: A hundred percent. And, uh, you know, the, the title basketball empire is very much an homage to Laurent Dubois, uh, groundbreaking work, soccer empire. Um, and you know, what, what I hoped to do with basketball empire was not to replicate what Laurent has so brilliantly done in that foundational piece of work, but to provide kind of a different kind of point into how sport more broadly, um, by France, uh, particularly in the 21st century, um, has certain degrees of success as measured by titles or medals or number of players in elite leagues or a a variety of different barometers, uh, but is also one of the most diverse and democratic milieus in French society. And it is thanks to, and because of its colonial history and the post-colonial legacies, as messy and as complicated and complex as those are, without that, we would have a vastly different situation today. And it is because of that diversity that enables uh, France to kind of play um, in the world globally within the sports scene today. And I, I think most within the sports realm in France today very much understand and acknowledge uh, that.
1: Yeah. I, um, I. I definitely, when reading it, I, I, I got the homage to, to, to Laurent Dubois's book, but I didn't. Your book and his book are totally different <laughs> in a good way, in a really productive way. I mean, he's not as interested in, in the diplomatic angle in some ways, uh, but also um, for people who are really interested in sports history, your, your work drives more deeply into the kind of function of, of the Fédération Française de Basketball uh, and, and of the NBA. Then, then Laurent's work looks at, for example, the Fédération Française de Football, he, which he doesn't really, he he hadn't mm-hmm. really um, looked at that as a kind of institution. Uh, so I appreciated the kind of differences. I, I want to. There's just such a rich book, Lindsay. So I don't want to. I we could talk at the we could talk at the macro level for a long time, um, and that would be good. But then listeners wouldn't wouldn't have some of the sense of the particularities. Uh, I would say, for people listening, there are three sections. Uh, the first section kind of uh, the three sections of the book, the first section kind of deals with this longer history of basketball in France. And there's a second section that deals particularly with uh, basketball in this late aughts, uh, early to late aughts period, where we have this emergence of this, as, as what Lindsay was calling it, this um, globalization of French stars as they enter into the NBA. And then there's a final section um, I want to make sure uh, it's called "Glowing Global," but it looks, um, in some ways at at the what the what the formation à la française is, like why the French system has been so successful, um, at at producing global stars uh, in a way that other countries have not. Um, and so, I, I'd I'd love to look at each one of these sections in in part and and very much just in part because for people listening, this is a really rich book. And it, it has uh, not only the kind of, you know, broad scope, but it has really a lot of like interesting texture to it with a lot of people who, even as, as someone who studies French sport, I was like, oh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, um, you know, know this person was doing that. I didn't know this person was doing that. Although I interviewed one of the people you mentioned in the book, um, who was a French uh, basketball player. And during the Vichy period, and he later became an official at the Fédération Française de Basketball. Um, Although I'm blanking on the name, but as soon as I came upon it in the book, I was like, oh, I've interviewed this guy. (laughs) Um, At any rate, I I wonder if you want to start, Lindsay, um, because we talked a little bit about basketball in the 1920s, that early origin, um, and really the first section of the book in some ways deals with, I don't know if you want to say the kind of, origins of French basketball in in line with this kind of American influence and how they are intention and in 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 collaboration so I wonder if you can kind of you know what what are you trying to do in the first part of that book in the first section of the book and maybe if you can I don't want to know do you want to start all the way back at the basketball in crisis or do you want to maybe start in that post 68 moment or
0: um, so we can start kind of with the, you know, with the f- kind of reintroduction of French basketball to its ami American in the in the early 50s. Um, the interesting thing about French basketball is that it, it was the first place where basketball was exported when it left North America. So if basketball is invented in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1891, it next is taken to France and in Paris, December 27th, 1893. the first basketball game on European soil at the YMCA building on Rue de Trevise in Paris, which is still there. It is the oldest existing um, original basketball court in the world, and actually a really interesting kind of symbolic um, uh, kind of um, legacy of French and American informal sports diplomacy. That's a whole different story. Uh, But um, from pretty much that early introduction period with the exception of the the immediate two world war periods French basketball developed on its own independent of the American cousin um, and uh, there is a compilation uh, co-edited by Fabian Archambault, Loic Artiaga, and Gerard Basque Le Continent Basket uh, that came out I think in 2015 that does a really good job kind of dealing with the spread of basketball from there through the rest of the European continent, but also how kind of French rules were dominating at least part of that strain. Um, So the book begins with um, the first American to really mark French basketball after World War II, Martin Feinberg, Um, and his story is kind of the the catalyst into the rest of it that, you know, obviously French basketball has been enriched by a wide variety of different influences um, because, just like other parts of French culture, um, basketball and sport more broadly have benefited from outside influence. It's not as insular all the time, I think as some people think, and certainly French historians know that quite well, Uh, but Martin Feinberg really kind of the the one to kind of launch this. And for me, one of the important things um, throughout the book was telling the story from the perspective of the players or the coaches or those directly involved. Um, a, kind of by necessity, because the kinds of questions I was interested in exploring um, were not really found in government archives to begin with, and B, um, because sport was not seen as as important for a good chunk of the time that the book covers. These were just not things that, you know, were, were captured and recorded for posterity in government archives in quite the same way as they might be today. Um, so kind of the, the twin propelling, but, you know, starting with Martin Feinberg, who didn't go to France to play basketball in 1954, uh, but basketball found him. And, you know, there's just one of the beautiful things about the French basketball story, and different from the football story, is that it is very much a family, an intergenerational family. It is also a much smaller world. Um, I was so but...
1: surprised to see how these like family connections, and you could yeah. almost do a ge- I was waiting for there to be a genealogy in the back of
0: yeah. So genealogy, not necessarily in terms of, you know, blood relatives, but certainly genealogy in terms of basketball, um, you know, generations. And for me, that was, yeah, one of the really enriching things for me personally, and, you know, getting to speak with different members of each of these, you know, basketball family, um, you know, the family trees was also really um, enlightening as well. And, you know, how, how Martin Feinberg's, uh, teammates at the times, say how much playing with him introduced them to a different type of ball, different way of thinking about what basketball could be like, and how they learned more about the United States through him and what he helped to impart about basketball back in the U.S. than from what they would read about in the media or from the government at that time. So you know, I I think that's kind of an early illustration of these sorts of things. And that entire first part is looking at a lot of the kind of those earlier interactions uh, which start to pick up pace after 1968. Um, and interestingly impacts, not just the men's game in France but also the women's game which has a very different kind of history. And actually up until you know perhaps the, the, the late 80s or 1990s French women's basketball had the, the stronger domestic history and kind of tradition of winning um, including um, with some international um, accolades than the men's um, game, uh, which is kind of a, there, there's many different kind of ironies in the larger story, but this being one of them and, you know, discovering how NBA champion Boris Diao's mother, uh, hoops heroine in her own right, Elizabeth Rithiad, her idol was Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, which is my team. I grew up in Boston. And, the only reason that she agreed to speak with me for this project, or at least initially, was because I wanted to ask her more about her idol, Bill Russell. And you know, she's like, "Well, wow, I love. Want... No one ever asked me about that." And so, um, you know, those kinds of kind of interesting connections to learn how, even if there's not kind of that person-to-person exchange, she very much learned how to defend and to do a one-handed um, jump shot through watching game tape of Bill Russell. Um, so speaking to the power that communications have, we think of that so much today in terms of what the internet and social media allows, empowers, um, and all the negative things that obviously go with it. Um, but I don't think as historians, particularly within sport, yes, we talk about the, the power of images, the power of moving pictures and you know television, but the ability to have game tape for a player overseas to watch the best of the best and to rewind and keep hitting play and replay over and over and then try to replicate that for me that was something entirely new and really spoke to a type of technical exchange that i had not thought about before but which in the process of doing the interviews and the research became clear that many of a certain generation did that
1: yeah i one of the things i loved about the book was how you know, you interrogated this notion throughout of the, of the idea of a difference between French and American styles. And it wasn't just kind of a, a technical difference on the court, uh, but also differences in preparation and in, in differences of attitude and differences of approach. Um, it was really interesting to see that. And at times, sometimes, you know, the, these, the movement of players or the movement of tape or the, I mean, the, obviously the internet now, has allowed for these styles to approach each other, but they never actually kind of entirely overlap, and they're and they're just different value sets as well. Like this idea that French basketball was about, you know, the the team and the movement of the ball, and not and not about athleticism and and, and so much. But then always players who who on both sides were like, no, I'm going to show them that I can. The Americans who came to France, showing them I can pass, <laughs> I know how to pass and the french uh, players coming over to the us who could who could throw one down you know and and play above the rim so it was really um that's one thing i loved about 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 the book as a whole but there was a really tricky chapter in that first bit uh triangulating foundation 68 to 84 i wonder if you can talk a little bit about about that because i think that encapsulated in some of the ways some of the 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 value of the book for people who are reading it, who want to be, who are interested in transnational sports histories, because this is something you do really well. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that chapter in particular, maybe the difficulties of this kind of triangulation of multiple empires.
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, that was the most difficult chapter to write of the book. It was also, I think, one of the very last ones I wrote even though it was the one that I had the most information on and kind of completed the research, you know, earliest Um, just because figuring out how to put it together in a narrative that kind of made sense, but still fit in with the the rest of the rhythm um, and hopefully didn't lose too much rhythm either. Um, You know, the triangulating uh, this particular chapter talks about the evolution in Uh, French men's basketball from 1968 through 1984, um, kind of the period where you start to see the floodgates open and more American players come into the French league, which was not professional until 1987. So it was amateur or semi-pro because the American players and some of the other foreigners they would get paid under the table or the teams or the companies that were their sponsors would provide the apartments, the cars, you know, a job teaching English. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, you know, you have an influx of American players at the same time. You have players increasingly from the French Antilles, notably Guadeloupe, but also Martinique, um, starting to come to the mainland and playing basketball. One of the stories that this chapter hinges on is Uh, Jacques Cashmere, um, one of the legendary players of French basketball um, who grew up in Guadeloupe. Uh, His grandfather was a slave um, and just really fascinating um, figure in terms of not just his story, but also the insights he offers in terms of being one of the first waves of players from the Antilles to really mark uh, French men's basketball. Um, certainly was not the first player of color on the men's national team. That distinction went to Roger Antoine in the 1950s, but Jack Kashmir kind of one the, of the, the big stars to really break through. And you know, hearing his tale about how growing up in Guadeloupe, yes, you know, uh, recently um, a full part of France, right? This is after the, the change of the um, into a full-on department, Um, but still being situated geographically close to the United States. This kind of starts to tease out the question, well, whose empire are we talking about anyhow? Is it, you know, empire in a geographic sense, but also empire in a cultural sense? Um, And, you know, Jacques Kashmir, you know, says how Bill Russell too was his idol. Um, And, you know, kind of an interesting story there, but, you know, that you have the American strain, the Antillian strain, but also at the same time, While you do have some players from Francophone Africa, notably Senegal, going to France um, at this time period, you also have the uh, French Basketball Federation, the FFBB, starting to send some of its its, um, technicians and coaches out to their former African um, holdings to newly independent Senegal, to newly independent Madagascar, among, among other countries. Um, and providing that technical exchange, that technical knowledge and know-how and training up um, some of the university um, or other youth teams there, which was a you know a very interesting insight to get. Um, and um the 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 player and official in question, Michelle Rat, you know, talks very much about yes, you know, how he was aware that you know this could be seen a certain way by the locals but that he personally never felt that he was necessarily there in a colonial capacity. He was there to share the love of the game um, and how, you know, over generations, you know, he too now has this genealogy of players, not just from France who he has helped to, to coach or to kind of um, uh, matriculate uh, into the the development system but also from Senegal in particular from Madagascar and how, He's been so proud that they too have gone on to kind of some of the top rungs of the sport within their countries or the African continent. So, you know, and that's one of the interesting aspects of or from my perspective, basketball empires that it I think it's providing snapshots of the intersection of African basketball and its francophone or American counterparts and hopefully paves the way for a lot more work that is needed to be done and can be done, and is, I think, hopefully, increasingly out there.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, I think we should talk about that a little bit at the end. But uh, one of the things that uh, that you're bringing out in your in your conversation as well, and that comes out in the book, is that this is not a picture of kind of mono, monodirectional empire, but it's, uh, you know, kind of polycentric empire in which things are are moving in lots of different directions and it's very agentic and people uh, focused uh, picture of empire. Um, so it's really was uh, rich in that in that respect.
0: And you also start to see that, that kind of traversing of the Atlantic in the other way from France to the United States as well, starting in the 1980s more consistently. And it's at that point where things start to, at least from my perspective, become interesting because it's no longer just kind of It speaks to the two-way flow of players' um, information experiences, not just France-US, but also France-Africa, and obviously the the Antilles being a full part of that. Um, So it's kind of textured in many ways, including with the women's game, uh, and Paulina Camby is the first French woman to play Division I basketball in 1984 with Marist College. Um, People might know of uh, Rudy Borgorell, who played on Marist College's men's team, the Red Foxes, um, in the 84, 85, 86 seasons. Uh, Rudy Bourguerelle is immortalized on celluloid um, in the film Coming to America, the Eddie Murphy movie. When they're at that March uh, tournament basketball game, he is in some of the frames of those because they filmed you know, at, with the actual game. Um, Rudy uh is the father of three-time NBA Defensive Player of the Year, Rudy Gobert. Um, so there is that interesting connection. Um, but Paulina Combi was, was one of the first. And uh, it's interesting in terms of how she is seen by subsequent generations of French players as uh, kind of the, the big sister in helping them towards their uh, American chapters or American experiences. And, you know, she was a legendary star in her own right in France before she went to the US and uh, was of such a caliber that she won her way into the starting five um, very rapidly. So it's not that she was a role player when she came to the US, she was you know, a major part of uh, the, their team from the get-go.
1: Yeah, there, um, there's one kind of other thread in the first section that I'd love to talk about, and there's so much more to talk about. But I want to get into the second section where we get where we get uh, some of the rise of the uh, twenty twenty late twentieth, early twenty first century basketball players. But that's the influence of and the kind of um, adaptation of not just like complete. Bar- it's not a borrowing; it's an adaptation of American. Um, language language about basketball um and and how basketball was intersecting with other cultural imports like rap music urban fashion and i was so glad to see Georges eddie because i love you know, listening if you listen to if you understand french you need to google uh, Georges eddie and listen to him discuss you know or him talking about basketball with all these american uh phrases but in entirely french ways <laughs> there are they're neologisms that were <laughs> that are so evocative but i would love to hear a little bit about that because i think we get the sense that i think we could ha- watching it get the sense that america that american pastimes just go to france but they're not adapted in a french way and that would be wrong uh, because your book shows that's not what happens
0: right so it's not just an americanization full-on of the game it is Kind of the French receiving basketball or some of the terminologies that are used and kind of reworking it and using them in their own context and ways, which I find very interesting. Others might argue otherwise. Um, but the you know, the example of George Eddy is, you know, kind of key. A French American, he grew up in the US and upon graduating college um, University of Florida, went to France because he wanted to try his hand in basketball, semi-pro, and he became the voice of the NBA uh, once Canal Plus began broadcasting NBA games. Uh, I think January 1985 was the first game that he uh, was the analyst for and how he brought the not just knowledge of the NBA and its style um, and the players um, who would be shown on, on these games, but also the lingo and what it meant and how he Help to kind of um, translate this um, into uh, French audiences, especially that, that first generation of kids who were so eager and excited to receive it. Um, and today, he, George Eddy is still super active in the basketball scene and um, you know, helping to be a key conduit and, and ambassador uh, of the sport at large. And I think that's one of the interesting things for me that comes out is that it basketball is not just about one identity, but it's about multi identities, multiple layers of identity at the same time with perhaps um, the global identity of being a basketball player or being part of the basketball world, kind of that that overarching um, sense that you know there, there's common reference points, right? Um, Michael Jordan or the dream team, um, Tony Parker, uh, Victor Juan Banyama, um, but also with it, those common reference points, there's, you know, a few common reference points in the music, um, you know, usually uh, hip hop rap, but not always. Um, and that, you know, has started to come through some of the most recent um, French arrivals in the NBA have introduced their U.S. teammates to French rappers like Niho and others. And now that's now played in some of the arenas. So, um, you know, it, it's it's about the game. It's about the culture around the game. Um, the way of kind of, you know, adhering to the principles of the game, the music, it's the fashion, but it's also the sneaker culture too. So it's all of these things. And I think that's what makes the identity of global basketball um, so super interesting.
1: So your next section um, will be of interest, not only to people who are French history nerds, but just anyone who loves the NBA would love reading this section, I think, because it's it's um i the first part of the book is fabulous and anyone who loves sports history would love that but the second part i could i feel like i could give that to anyone who loves the nba and isn't a historian uh it's so rich and it's uh, a focus on these 21st century basketball players and how they act these french basketball players how they act as sports diplomats in the u.s you look at tony parker boris Diaz, sandrine gruda Nicholas Batum I, I mean on and on and on I so I wondered um if you could talk a little bit about how you saw these people as sports diplomats and maybe um you know if you want to talk they're, they're they're each one of these chapters focuses on one or two players um but if you want to focus on one or two of them yourself because if we went through all of them I think it would take us a long yes. time <laughs> um
0: so with this particular section I was really fascinated to ask the players themselves what is it like to be french in the nba in the nba or the wnba you know you you know from the most mundane parts to kind of the bigger picture things um and i was very lucky that so many of them agreed to speak with me so the the ones who are the the titles in the chapter you know are are the ones who i was able to do more extensive interviews with or um with the example of um Nicola Batum and Maureen Johannes, a series of um, interviews I did for media pieces that were on the record and were integrated in um, to get at their experience. So it was um, really kind of one of the most fun parts um, uh, of doing the book. And also uh, one of the more fun parts to write because as historians, we usually kind of write a little bit more formulaically or, you know, there's certain ways we have to go about doing it, but um, at least for some of the first ones, the standalone Boris Diao chapter, um, or the standalone Sandrine Gruda, I was able to play around a little bit with, um, you know, kind of the art of crafting, or uh, shaping the narrative for nonfiction writing. And that, you know, as a writer, that's always kind of fun to to do and try to reimagine how you might do things. Um, the Boris Diao chapter um, is kind of one of those big ones, but I'd love, as one of our examples, the standalone, I'd like to talk about the Sandrine Gruda one, as the first French champion in the WNBA. And I think really an example of how the fact that this project took so long to get into publication um, benefited it ultimately, because way back when, when I first conceived, it was focused only on the NBA and only on that narrow US-France connection. Over time, it it grew to include the African and Antillean side, as well as, Um, when I came back to it in 2020 during the pandemic, it seemed to me silly to write about it without writing about it in a holistic sense. And that meant fully integrating the women's uh, game as a full part of the story, not as a separate part, um, but as kind of the the fuller part of uh, the basketball story. And Sandrine's story helps me to do that very much as She's still active. She's still playing professionally. She's playing for Tony Parker's uh, women's team, uh, Asva Lyon. She's still with the national team. Uh, She is dominant. She is, even for me, very inspirational in terms of how she has this mental toughness. And her chapter, you know, one of the things we went behind the scenes for was what it was like growing up French. She's uh, from Martinique, uh, but, you know, still growing up French, whether... Uh, on the island of Martinique, or when she went to the mainland for her basketball training, how she was different mentally from so many other French or you know Martiniques uh, around her, in that she wanted to win it all and to do whatever it took to to put in all the hard work to do it, um, and you know that that mentality of being a winner, uh, of the mentality of being a champion was not at the time, and we could argue on this, you perhaps still today, not as common in French culture as it is maybe in the American culture. Um, You know, it's a different mental outlook and attitude and, you know, how she struggled to try to come to terms with the fact that she might have been seen as a little bit of an extraterrestrial for always behind and working on her game instead of going out to the movies during leisure time or other things but how when she came to the United States and was around in the WNBA and it was around other players who had that exact same kind of drive and motivation everything just clicked Um, and so that was the kind of example of things that you know aren't really as much in media interviews that I was able to ask and tease out in the course of an uh and, you know the the interview um conversation and to kind of prod a little bit on. Um and so I think that's one of the one of the interesting kind of standalone chapters. The other one is the one um that features Nicola Batum and Marine Johannes um two two players um kind of slightly two different generations both from a tiny town in Normandy Luzou that's not really known for its basketball until they came along. Um, and Nicola who is the current um, Team France captain, um, is part of the larger genealogy. He was uh, national team coach, Vincent Collet's first basketball son. Um, uh, the the one who gave uh, Batum his first chance at playing pro when he was 16 at Le Mans. Le Mans, which also has a very interesting connection to US influences. Um, and how I first started interviewing um, Batum in 2015. Uh, it started off as a piece I did on him and Bill Kane um, uh, for The New Yorker that year and over the years uh, as you know I've continued to interview him on the record for different things you know just the kind of the evolution of how he expresses himself and you know how he talks about uh his role as a player not just for France or for his pro team uh, but also as a player for the game and a representative of the game for me it's been interesting to see that evolution of his which is in part why i also give him the the last words in the book on the game's global growth um but yes so those are i think two examples
1: yeah those i mean um there are it's hard to it would be hard to pick i'm glad you had to pick and not me because really all of the um all of the chapters here are really evocative and it's it it the few things like the major themes that i drew out of this section in particular were the ways in which the french players were, had challenges in transitioning to the us often language issues obviously being a major challenge but also just cultural fit issues and and sandrine Gruda's chapter was really great at bringing out like this difference in kind of competitive culture and having lived overseas now for a long time in Australia, that's something that um, my wife and I have noticed. Um, just starting at a young age in Australia too, that this emphasis on win, like winning at all costs, is not a is not a part of of of, cult, of culture here. And we kind of laugh that we're inculcating our children with these bad, you know, like they're going to be bad winners and sore losers, you know.
0: <laughs> well, so the interesting commonality through all the. french in the french in the u.s uh chapters and i asked them what do you miss about home to to the person it's always about the food
1: Food, and so
0: kind of that 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 that, you know that window in through food it is real and it is um it is yeah it's an interesting commonality
1: i can't remember which player it was was it batum who became like the team sommelier who was like oh i introduce everyone on the team to wine because i know i know wine Dio dia uh, okay, yeah, yeah.
0: Yes, cuz he is from Bordeaux.
1: <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> well, I also one of the other things that I really liked was that there were you could tell uh you know that there were French genealogies but also American genealogies too like particular American teams and Greg Popovich I think is a great mm-hmm. example yeah. of of Americans who are like I know how to work with Fr- French people and I can I can bring them in and integrate them into my team culture mm-hmm. because they play in a French way that works with my the way I want my team to play and there are other uh, NCAA teams women's and men's that had maybe more success or less uh or you know less resistance to bringing in French players I did wonder um you know if if um if you could just generalize broadly what were the major things that you thought besides the competitiveness that French players learned about U.S. basketball so what was the how how close are these french and u.s styles i guess and then also did you did you feel because this brings us right up to the present in some ways this section is there still a kind of prejudice against french players because some of the players ran up into that like a you know not some of them ran into racial prejudice or other things in inside the broader u.s culture but then within u.s basketball there were specific prejudices against french players as being put one way or another I guess, I don't, I'm trying not to step on it by telling.
0: Yeah, um, and it is one of the non-players who is featured who I think can speak and does speak in the book most freely about um, some of those French prejudices. And um, I, I think all of us would make the argument that with the very recent, um, you know, history in the making uh, of Victor Banyama. Uh, but also Bilal Koulibaly and Washington, um, these two French rookies who are coming in and defying the odds and actually having really good starts to their rookie season in a way that kind of um, puts puts all of the hype to bed, right? I think that has started to change the metric that there's not the same sort of anti-French prejudice that Others have had to encounter whether they have stated it on the record or whether others have stated it on the record for them. So I think we're at an inflection moment, and I think that is aided by the fact that the NBA. It's very clear that the NBA and the WNBA as well um, by 2023 is a very international affair. That it is not just American players who are dominating. It's actually the international players who have begun to do so with. Um, you know the last several league mvps being from europe or africa and not from the united states and a variety of other barometers as well so i think that 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 helps the franchise does um the Wembanyama, Wendy one mania um for sure
1: i'd love to talk to you about the last section too because this section is really um it goes into s- some detail about things that i think a lot of people interested in sports studies are really interested in which is basically like why why has france been successful in this going global moment. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit at qu'est-ce que c'est la formation la Française, you know? <laughs> and talk to us a little bit about Ancep, which is so present in the book, which we haven't talked about, or in the Pôle Espoir, and...
0: When, even when I asked NBA NBA um, officials and movers and shakers, you know, why why it is France? You know, they, they point very much to the youth development programs um, that, both through the, the Federation, which culminates with INSEP, as well as through the professional club academies, which um, began to develop once basketball went pro after 87, um, but really kind of more so in the 1990s. And the interesting thing we see um, and where there is a present day tension um, that I tried to point, point, the, point the breadcrumbs towards, but, Uh, I think we'll be seeing this playing out in real time is that the success of France's overall youth development programs and detection in basketball in this particular case, the success that they're having, they're falling a little bit victim to that in terms of it is when you look at the last several cohorts of French into the NBA or into the WNBA, they were formed through the pro club youth academies and not at INSEP. Um, and that is a problem for the for the federation, right? Because they are still tapping into the best of the best, um, but you know, increasingly some of that um, is you know going to the pro clubs, and so this is going to be a, a continued tension point well into the 2020s as both try to grapple um, and um, come to terms with each other. I think the last French NBA player uh, to be pretty much mostly formed at INSEP was Evan Fournier, Um, and he entered the league in 2012. So it's been a while. Um, On the WNBA side, it's a little less pronounced simply because it's still, um, INSEP still has very strong, um, not just recruiting programs, but also that the French um, women's uh, pro academies are not as entrenched or as numerous as their male counterparts. Um, Marine Johannes, though, came up through the uh, Center uh, Youth Academy program. Ileana Rupert, um, who won the WNBA championship two seasons ago with the Vegas Aces, she came out of INSEP. Um, so there, there is that. Um, and so the, the French formation, you know, detecting them early, putting them in specialized programs starting around age 13 um, for those who are good enough to qualify that. Follows both um, sports, you know, sports supervision and training, but also scholastic supervision and training, and medical supervision and training. um, Trying to take this kind of three prong holistic approach, which also includes increasingly health and psychology as well. Um, This is something that's been there, kind of really known on the football side since the since the mid nineteen seventies and the the National Training Center at Clairefontaine. Um, has certainly produced Le Bleu, a football for for generations. Mm-hmm. Insep uh, now um, the the pro club academies and basketball uh, doing that that very same thing, uh, but really kind of bringing together some of the country's best players and having them play and learn and kind of grow up grow up um, together. Um, you know is, is part of their secret sauce.
1: Yeah, the player academies. I mean, I, I, I'm i very curious to to ask you about what influence you think this French development system has on the NBA, but also maybe glo- globally on other countries. But it was interesting to see, because the, the fight between the Fédération Française de Basketball and the, the Player Academy seems to be around the payments that they can get from the NBA when people leave. Um, And and, uh, the player academies also often benefit big time from players who come back from the NBA, who bring money uh, and um, their own skills and expertise, uh, like um, Tony Parker, for example, being a great example uh, back. So I do wonder if there's a kind of a a positive feedback loop with with the player academies that won't work, at least on the men's side, maybe for Ansep um, in, in the same way.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's something that still is a, a work in progress. And, uh, you know, depending who you talk to, it's a more positive um, uh, <laughs> step or, or, or more negative one. I think overall what we have seen over, say, the past decade, um, decade and a half, um, has been far more positive relationships between the NBA, the FFBB, INSEP, and the youth academies um, kind of in this larger project of forming uh top talent and where you know training it to to play at the elite the elite level both in international competition as well as professionally um
1: do you, do you so think,
0: i think i'm
1: oh, mm-hmm. sorry i didn't i didn't mean to interrupt i i just wonder because that could bring us to kind of one of your uh, final chapters that i found really fascinating one of the chapters at the end and that i also found really fascinating which was rubbing shoulders with african basketball uh, where i really found it almost sounded at times like the NBA and in French basketball and African basketball were again triangulating locally and that sometimes the NBA was playing nice and sometimes it wasn't (laughs) and so both French basketball and and the NBA were very much fighting in Africa to be the more influential uh... so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and you brought it up earlier so I was like oh I want to bring this up but towards the end.
0: So it's very interesting as basketball is making significant inroads in terms of growth, popularity, mediatization, consumption uh, across all these different barometers across the African continent, um, that it is the NBA uh, that is kind of leading the charge. The French still have their their fingers in the mold. Um, And when we talk about the NBA in Africa, I think it's critical to state that it is the NBA mark and brand, but it is driven by Senegalese, um, you know, homegrown um, Amadou Galofal. So it is it is not an American, you know um, propelling strategy and growth of the NBA in Africa uh, through basketball Africa League. It is Amadou Galofal, uh, born and raised in Senegal, who went to the United States on a basketball scholarship. Um, uh, he played at the University of washington, d c. Um, so, you know, very much kind of a beneficiary of that whole system. Um, but given the historic ties between Senegal and France, perhaps a little bit closer than some of the other Francophone African countries, uh, particularly in basketball, at least, then, you know, there, there there's that kind of natural connection when we talk about the NBA in Africa, it's the NBA in Africa, it's the NBA in North America. And there is that kind of that goes also through France. You see this as well um, at competitions such as um, K54, the world's biggest street ball tournament that's held every summer in Paris. Um, And it has a very strong African connection as well. They, I believe right now they're getting ready to kind of highlight, um, you know, African contributions to the game and so forth. So it it is kind of um, interwoven. Um, When you talk about French government sports diplomacy and how that provides an umbrella for some of the French sports federations to engage with counterparts in different parts of the world, particularly Africa, you do see basketball playing very strongly in that. Um, There is a current program that is currently underway that's not in the book um, because that started kind of at the tail end of it um, between basketball, handball and volleyball federations the six of their African counterparts and kind of the technology exchange and the knowledge exchange that that's helping to foment. I think it's going to be something really interesting to watch and will help, I think, to further kind of unpack the different layers of how African basketball or volleyball and handball rub shoulders with their French counterparts. And it's a, perhaps a somewhat complicated uh, relationship, um, but you know, certainly kind of keeping it under that um, you know, you could make the argument what we see with the growth of basketball in Africa, it's kind of a connection to the U.S. and to France more than to other basketball playing countries.
1: Absolutely. No, look, I, I wish we could talk for uh, an, another hour, but we can't. <laughs> um, but I I, uh, I did want to ask you kind of two, if you could give two quick uh Responses to to two quick questions, which is basically the questions of the future. So, what's what's the you talk briefly about it in the book, but the future of French basketball. But I also want to know what you're working on, Lindsay, and what we can look forward to reading next. Uh, you know what what I, you're so busy with with France and us and with the run up to the Olympics. I'm following you posting every day on social media. It's unfair to ask you about a book, but or, but anything you want to talk about. Uh, and definitely tell us what France and us are up to for the Olympics.
0: Thank you. Yeah, so these are all interrelated questions. So France and Us is a campaign or project I started two years ago to highlight French and American relations through sport and sports diplomacy, past, present, and among the rising generation. Obviously, there's a whole heck of a lot of basketball involved, uh, not just those who are featured in the book, but also um, those who are not featured in the book, but who are very much a part of this story, um, and particularly those who are current student-athletes in NCAA programs or recently uh, recently student-athletes, so really kind of having these very current voices and how they think of themselves as sports diplomats, either in France or the United States, and different permutations, it definitely does feed into the Paris Games 2024. Uh, But that brings us to your question of what's next for this kind of basketball empire. It's very clear that there's going to be a continued pipeline of French players into the U.S. leagues, the NBA, the WNBA, the NCAA. That is not going to stop. If anything, there's going to be closer cooperation between the two uh, earlier th- in November, we had the first NCAA women's basketball regular season game kickoff on foreign soil in Paris it was Notre Dame, Notre Dame, uh, and uh, <laughs> South Carolina. And I was there, it was a sold out, sold out arena. It was a smaller arena, but um, the, it was not all, you know, us alumni is easily you know, quite a lot of French there. And, uh, you know, certainly, the NCAA level is another one to look at. So there's going to continue to be closer cooperation uh, at the basketball level, on the professional, on the university level, going in both ways across the Atlantic. It is aided by the interconnectivity of the Paris 2024-LA-2028 summer games. It will be aided a little less so by the likely connectivity of the French Alps 2030 Salt Lake City 2034 winter Olympic cycle. Um, but, you know, when you look at, you know, who is engaging in proactive sports diplomacy efforts and policies, it's really the French. And they're working very closely with the American counterparts in the lead up to Paris 2024 across a variety of sports. Basketball being one of the key ones. Um, my crystal ball, the Olympic basketball tournament at Paris 2024 <laughs> is going to be. Super exciting, um, even as the first stages will be in the north in Mille. Um, you know, certainly given that neither country won the FIBA World Basketball um, Cup uh, this past fall, that was Germany. Uh, you're going to have several strong teams coming into the Olympics on the men's side, on the women's side. Uh, we will remember that the women's national team won bronze at Tokyo, uh, the US women's team won gold. U.S. women's, uh, sorry, French women's three by three basketball has been consistently ranked the top in the world over the past several years, the men less so. And of course, Les Bleus, um, the men's team, they lost the gold medal in Tokyo by two plays at the very end of that game. So I predict it's going to be anyone's gold medal. Um, and, you know, does does home soil advantage help? Um so I think that's kind of what we're seeing. What I am working on, nothing right now. I am still enjoying kind of the <laughs> the 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 bounce after after Basketball Empire, which yes, just came should. out this, this fall.
1: This out this year, yeah.
0: But I am thinking of, and I actually we just had a case study come out through Georgetown University on Le Blues Basketball in China, talking about Franco um, the Sino. French uh, basketball diplomacy, 1966, 1980, and then in 2019, which was kind of a, a byproduct of basketball empire research. But um, so that came out, I am thinking of trying to write part of some of the story into a historical fiction, maybe short story, um, looking at basketball players in the cold war, particularly those from France, including with their American players, who traveled frequently behind the Iron Curtain
1: that sounds into awful. places
0: where U.S. teams typically did not in the same way.
1: That sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, that would be fascinating, too. And I'm always looking for, for good historical fiction. So when that comes out, you have to let me know.
0: For sure, for sure. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dr. Lindsay Krasnoff, who's the author of a fabulous book you should all be picking up now, Basketball Empire France and the Making of a Global NBA and WNBA out with Bloomsbury uh, in 2023. Thank you, Lindsay, so much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
1: I am Keith Rathbone. You've been listening to the New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network